Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. One hundred women currently serve in the House of Representatives, and that's a record. But still, women make up just 23% of the governing body. And that's where Women Belong in the House comes in. From Wonder Media Network, host Ginny Kaplan seeks to understand the state of gender representation in office and asks how Congress would change if it looked more like the people it represents. This is a landmark election for a number of reasons, but it's also another historic year for women running for office. This season, Jenny is speaking with women who are running in some of the most contentious swing states in the country. Listen and subscribe to Women Belong in the House wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those who did about the most divisive issues in our country. Ravi, you want to tell these good folks about our special guest co-host? Of course. Uh, today we have Mike Murphy, a Republican political consultant with some serious gigs under his belt. He's been a media and strategy advisor for many people you recognize, uh, including John McCain, Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can also find him as an analyst on NBC's Meet the Press and co-host of one of my favorite political podcasts, uh, Hacks on Tap, opposite my former boss, David Axelrod and Robert Gibbs. He's a vocal critic of the Trump administration and has been a strategic advisor for uh, RVAT, Republican Voters Against Trump. Uh, he also co-directs the USC Center for the Political Future, which is dedicated to promoting civil political dialogue, which is very similar to our mission here on the pod. Mike's been bringing his unique approach to the political business for over 25 years now. Mike, uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, guys. It's good to be here in good old Majority 54. I'm pretty <laughs> sure you're our, I think you're only the second Republican ever on here. So, Re Who was the first victim? Who? Oh, uh, you'll actually really like this. The first guy was a guy named Tony Sedgwick, who was, he lives in Arizona, along the border and, and the wall would have to be built on his property. And I went down to his <laughs> ranch and I interviewed him in an open barn. So this oh, is exactly great. like that. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm here in my barn in Los Angeles, California. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, well, Mike, we usually start with the, the news of the week and we have a few big items to start with. But before we do anything, uh, I just want to just start with the state of the race. And right now we're about 20 days from the election. We're recording this on Wednesday this week. And if you look at the 538 site, they have the national average going for Biden over 10 points, 10.6 points. And when you look state by state, they have Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, both between seven to eight percentage points for Biden. Um, and some you know, pickup states like Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, somewhere between three and four percent for Biden at the moment. I've heard you say on the Hacks on Tap pod 
a few times now that you're almost getting bored by this race. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm bored out of my mind. Uh, and people <laughs> say, "What are you? What are, you're crazy?" The president set his hair on fire yesterday, or said the moon is made out of communist green cheese or whatever. But I'm 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 bored with Trump's antics, even though if you kind of stand back, we're trapped in a Marx Brothers movie here because something crazy happens every 45 seconds. But if you actually look like a political hack at the at the race, it, it's pretty dug in. It's been dug in for a long time. I mean, the truth is, Trump has been in trouble since the day he got inaugurated. You just have to look at the special elections, you know, the midterms in Congress, the governorships where we've lost, I believe, nine control of nine governorships. Almost every special election, even in safe Republican districts, we've done under normal, anywhere from medium bad to really bad. So the country's been trying to fire Trump for a while, and then COVID showed up and raised the stakes of the job a lot. And in pretty obvious uh, evidence, uh, Donald Trump really, really screwed up, and people know it. You know, it's interesting. Most governors and executives have done pretty well politically during this because they kind of get in charge. They're smart enough to let the guys with the medical degrees do the thinking. And, you know, they've elevated their numbers. Trump's been the opposite. So anyway, I, I think this race is boring in the fact that nothing has really happened to dramatically change it, at least on a national basis. And so it is politically boring, but in the news cycle, it's exhaustingly bizarro. One of the things I've said on this pod before that I'd be curious on your thoughts on is like, it feels like in any administration, usually it's by the end of the second term, there's just a certain level of just wearing out the public just by hearing the same person for that long. Yeah. And I feel like Trump is, he exhausts us with his antics, but on top of that, it feels to everybody, whether you like him or not, like he's been president for dang ever. So it just <laughs> yeah. feels like it amplifies that usual, just sort of wearing, a, you know, just sort of ready for a new voice. Yeah, no, I, it's like dog years. You know, one year of right. Trump is like seven normal politicians. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, we've had about 14 October surprises yeah. uh, under the old measure of what an October surprise is. But the country's so kind of polarized. It's interesting. And in, in our Republican Voters Against Trump stuff, our vet.org, we are doing a big IE in Florida because Florida's the key state. You win Florida, you've pretty much got them. You, you only need to pick up one of the others in Midwestern states or, you know, maybe in Arizona to lock it up in the Electoral College. So we do a lot of focus groups of soft Republican voters and, and indep white independents. And the most powerful message is with the independent, it, it is not the Trump bashing, by the way. When you start calling him a COVID murderer, it, it actually hurts you. It works the other way. Because they don't think COVID was Trump's fault. They thought he was kind of the guy there when it happened. But they don't think he's done a particularly good job by any means. But what they really want is, can we get back to normal if somebody could actually unite the country you know, and, and take the fighting away and the, and the screaming and all that enough already. It, it's kind of Trump, et cetera, and headache fatigue. And that is really what in many ways is driving independence. They're looking for that candidate. What, what Biden has going for him is he's already built in as that guy. That is part of what's propelled him. But to finish up on state of the race, right now, Biden is with the clock quickly running out. Trump has failed to have anything happen in the race that would give him a hook to change it. Under a normal playbook, Trump would have would have had a coordinated attack on Biden and Harris in September to tee up a really good first debate at the end of September and be very much in business in October to try to close the race and win those. You know, he, the popular vote is so demographically favorable to the D's now, as, as Hillary found out. But in those electoral swing states in the industrial Great Lakes and, you know, places like that, he might have had some traction. Instead, we had 
the Trump campaign was broke in September, so Biden was able to totally outmuscle him on TV because that knucklehead power scale with, with, of course, the real boss, uh, Kushner, the classic idiot son-in-law, it's like a bad family business uh, story here, blew all the money pre-convention. So they had no cash in September. Biden was able to muscle him. Biden was able to protect his flank on crime and, and, and rioting. And then they had the worst debate in the history of you know debates. So right now, the clock is running out. Trump does not have a handle on the race. Trump's own need to be Trump is getting in the way of any coordinated offense. They have very little money. They're getting beat everywhere on TV. So Biden now is in a strong position in the industrial Midwest, outside the margin of error ahead. And he's in a race, a close race. It's like it's really like two points in Florida and maybe a little better in Arizona and pretty close in North Carolina. So there's no state where like Trump is got Biden on the ropes. It's the opposite. And that is a great position to be in if you're Joe Biden, particularly as Election Day is now two weeks long with all this early voting. So the number of days Trump has left is, you know, we're losing 10 percent of them a day. We're in the hunt right now for just potential issues that can upend this race. And this week, theoretically, was going to be one of those weeks that provided opportunity for Trump, both with the Supreme Court hearings and with a debate that is that is now going to be dueling town halls, it appears, tomorrow night. Focusing on the Supreme Court confirmation process for a second, we're now, as we record this in day three of that pro- of the, the hearings, and it seems like uh, the hearings are going on as we're speaking, but um, up until now, it looks like the discussion is largely focused on two things. Um, one is the ACA, which the Democrats have been pushing very hard and have been getting a lot of credit for being pretty disciplined about, um, and abortion. And it seems like a lot is focused on those two issues. It seems like the Republicans want to push the Democrats into applying some kind of uh, religious attack on uh, Barrett, but that so far does not seem to have been playing out. This seems way more subdued than the Kavanaugh hearings. Is there any chance that this is going to matter for the election, these Supreme Court hearings? I think it may matter in a couple of Senate races where there's a lot of close action going on. But in the presidential, the the Dems have been smart. They they learned from the mistakes that Senator Feinstein made last time, where she started going into the Pope and Romer stuff and the Catholicism and, and you know, fumbled. And Amy Coney Barrett is a good communicator. She's an appealing person. So the Dems this time have been smart enough not to kind of bring out the fangs and instead said, all right, let's look at our big Captain Nemo organ here. We can play the pro-choice, pro-life music. And in the suburbs where we've been killing Trump, the formerly Republican suburbs, there's nothing in that fight that'll help Trump come back. So, you know, on Thursdays and Fridays, we can go play that that song and we're going to do fine. And then we got this ACA thing. And, you know, as uh, as you guys know from being around politics, the, the hard reality is healthcare politics is like diving into a swimming pool full of razor blades. Whoever is perceived as somebody who's going to make scary changes is going to get slaughtered. So originally, you know, with the first Obamacare, ooh, scary changes, Dems got destroyed. Then the Dems figured out the thing to argue is the bad, mean, scary Republicans in 2008, they're going to take away your very popular pre-existing conditions. So now our guys dove into the swimming pool full of razor blades. So the ACA pre-existing condition thing is a real lightsaber. And so the other keys on the big Captain Nemo organ are, you know, let's play a little of that. What we're not going to do is take this very appealing person and have a bunch of sneering, eagle, egomaniacal senators uh, bark at her. Now, that said, in a busy presidential race, this is mostly food for the primary voters on each side to get excited about. 
uh, as far as being a lightning bolt to move a bunch of people, uh, I don't see it. You know, it, it, we forget, uh, we junkies often, and this includes people who run campaigns about what Anderson Cooper, Rachel Maddow, or Sean Hannity is hyperventilating about often doesn't have a grip on most of the country where they're like, hey, can I get my job back? And what are we going to do about COVID? Because my dad's 70 and afraid to get out of the house. What are we going to do about the cost of prescription drugs? So I don't think this is an earth shaker unless somebody makes a tragic mistake. And the Biden guys and the Dems are smartly, they're, they're doing what my Canadian friends all like to call rag the puck. Hey, another day went by where it was just another squabble on cable, one side, the other side. Great day for Joe Biden. It is. It's sort of like the Four Corners offense here. It's just like, hey, things are going well. I, and which is why I think to the any extent that it changes things, it's just its ability to move the subject away from COVID and the mismanagement, right? Which is why it's so smart that the Dems are keeping it on healthcare, right? Keeping it in, in that issue area, particularly pre-existing conditions. The other thing I guess it could do is that it's always good to win something. And so they are going to have a win in the next several yeah. days by confirming her. And that can create some momentum. But I think that goes back to your point of it's all primary politics. And what it reminds me of is when I was in the state legislature, one of my really good buddies was a Republican, a very moderate Republican who has since become a Democrat. We were both very bipartisan, right? Like I was real liberal. He was moderate, but we would work together a lot. And it would cause people to get real skeptical of us on our respective sides. Right. And so we would, every few months, do this thing we call the base-off, where we would pick an issue that the two of us knew we completely disagreed on, and we would just plan to go to the floor and just have it out. And it would be very helpful to both of us. And I think that gets to where it is relevant in Senate races. So, speaking as somebody who this sort of thing happened when I ran for the Senate, and it definitely helped get Republican voters out. But I think in this case it probably motivates voters on both sides. Oh, yeah. No, each side will have a flag to wave. And, you know, by the way, that what you said is so interesting because that's part of how politics really works. You know, the, it's the old Reagan-Qaddafi thing. Hey, you know, Reagan gets to blow up an airstrip and Qaddafi is now leader of the radical Arab world. Do it again, pal. We're in business together. <laughs> right, and right. people underestimate, how, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote this uh, pilot uh for a tv show called ways and means at cbs and uh we're going to making the pilot may wind up on the air and it's about the secret life of congress you know how how on both sides they're kind of trapped in this world as pals and they have to put on those shows once in a while for the primary voters back home to survive the crazy system i i do think in the senate races though a pro-life a pro-choice fight has a little different dynamic depending on where you are if you're lindsey graham in South Carolina, and you are up against it because, you know, Jamie Harrison is a great candidate. He's run, he's raised essentially unlimited money, but it's still South Carolina. Trump's going to carry that state and probably pretty well, even at the nadir of Trump's support. Having a nice pro-life fight where you're in the middle of it does give you a, a, a beat there. So um, I, I, if it's a wave election, Lindsey can lose, but it's kind of stacked his way just to miracles as close as it is. And I think this thing could help him a little bit. On the other hand, it's not great for people in states where the Republican brand is already an anchor. You know, the Cory Gardner's in Colorado, the Susan Collins's. So and even even in North Carolina, where it's becoming a fair fight because Tillis has a lot of trouble, the incumbent. North Carolina's changed a lot. It's much more suburban now. And so has South Carolina. But he has his own problems. Uh, but the, the abortion, the pro-life, pro-choice fight there doesn't break 
pro-life the way it used to in North Carolina. So it might net-net help Cunningham. So, you know, you kind of have to look at that one state by state. But overall, no, I, I think the race is about a pretty simple thing, Trump versus COVID and COVID's winning. Uh, for both of you, one thing that, that seems a little different this time is that it seems like the Republicans are going to get what they want before the election. And how does that affect the enthusiasm as it relates to this issue? So I could see it going one way if Republicans were denied the ability to fill this seat. I feel like that would really agitate Trump supporters or if the seat was left open and people were motivated for what happens after the election. But it seems like this could be more beneficiary to enthusiasm on the Democratic side because Democrats are the the people not getting what they want and feeling aggrieved by the process, whereas Republicans are getting what they want right before the election. Like in my head, psychologically, it seems like that could actually be a problem for the GOP. Oh, not look, the two hundred million bucks after Ginsburg, that when this fight started, that flew into Democratic coffers is a, a good, you know, example of what kind of passion the Dems have. So uh, both sides again will have a flag to wave. But the idea we were robbed, evil Mitch McConnell, Dracula forced through. You know, now now they're going to take away everything, which by the way I don't believe is true. They tend to respect precedent extremely. And the Supreme Court is also very political. Uh, but the the passion will be there, and that will be net-net to the Democrats. But let, let me just take a moment of indulgence here, because this is my favorite crank contrarian topic. As a practitioner, it drives me crazy how the noise machine on cable TV and in the puntocracy, even though I'm a paid-up member, obsesses with turnout and intensity in a presidential election, you already have really high turnout. It is an, in an off-year election, you don't. Grumpy old voters vote, and Republicans tend to do pretty well. In an on-year election, a lot of people vote better for the Dems. And we have this new equation in politics where we treat base voters like swing voters. Oh, the base won't like it. The base will vote for a box of hammers if it has an R or a D on it. <laughs> the whole idea that the fickle base voters of Oakland on the Democratic Party are all going to stay home or vote for Trump if Kamala Harris doesn't have the same size airplane or whatever the cable story of the day is, as Joe Biden, is absolute bullshit. You know, in, in, when we used to, I, I used to do a lot of governor's races in the Republican parties in purple states. We didn't do it by making the base happy because then you have the happiest 43% in the world, but you don't get any extra credit if your voters do a happy dance after they throw the lever for you. That doesn't count twice as much as a vote. You actually put the base in a little pain to go get those finicky swing voters and steal a few from the other side to get to your 50 and win. And that's how Tommy Thompson did it, how John Angler did it. You go through all the successful Republican governors of the 80s and 90s. But now in both parties, we have this the base or swing voters, so you're hostage to them, which is all bullshit. Torturing the base is part of the art of winning a tough campaign. The question is, will the fickle suburbs full of wealthy independents who went to college and soft suburban Republicans who economically kind of like their 401ks with Trump but can't bring up in a dinner party that they, they were thinking about buying a red hat? As long as Biden cannot scare them away or let Trump scare them away, he's going to win. It's not about the base. And by the way, if you have a base war now demographically, the Democratic base in a presidential is bigger. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry. that That's yeah. my wild-eyed, you know, Robert Finney rant that I get I, to do about once a month. We appreciate a good rant around here. <laughs> it, you know, it what it sort of reminds me of is what I'm seeing right now in the Senate races is they're doing the same thing that they were actually doing four years ago when they thought they were about to lose. 
and I think our response is going to be really determinative of what happens. And here's what I mean. They're now pivoting to the you, you need a check on a Biden presidency argument. Right. And I think that's an argument that our listeners are going to hear from people a lot. People who are maybe they're red hat curious, you know, but they don't want to say it out loud. Maybe they want to say about a Senate race. Well, I just want to check on a Biden presidency. And I think that the, the big thing we have to get right this time at the national level, but also on the person to person level is we have to embrace the idea of arguing for unified control. I mean, that's what the Republicans do. They don't say, well, you know, yeah, balance is good. No, what we have to do is we have to take our most popular policies, you know, COVID relief, healthcare, democracy reform, gun safety, with these suburban voters and say, no, 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 you want Democrats in control of the whole thing for a while. I think we have to unapologetically make that argument. One way I think Biden could calm people down is answer the damn question about packing the court. Biden can say, no, I'm bringing us back to normal. Adults are going to prevail. We're not going to do banana republic games with the court. But I promise you this, there will be an opening when I'm president and I'm going to appoint a great justice. Well, how does he know? Did he make a secret deal? No, it doesn't matter. You know, he can just say it. He can claim he's going to have an appointment. And then most people on the day, yeah, he'll have an appointment. Now the progressives will get mad. The Bernie people will stomp. You know who the Bernie people are voting for? Joe Biden. Doesn't matter how happy they are. The great weakness, I can tell you from the other side of the Democratic Party, and Mark Lilla, Columbia, wrote a great book about this, who attacked this stuff from the left, which I highly recommend, is that the Republicans at their best always sell one idea, vote for us to get this big vision of America, a shining city on the hill. The Democrats go into this identity world, which is America is a nation of groups. You ever look at the DNC website? There are like 418 groups. And the problem is when you're when you define yourself in groups, then it becomes all right. Who's got the most grievances? Well, we do. We're we're Latino men. It's terrible. And then, well, wait a minute. We're African American women. We get it both. We're black and we're women. Everybody. And so we we outrank you. And then it becomes this this group versus group definition of America, all defined by gene code. Well, then the repubs, and this is the evil part of it all. It creates a fertile world for the Trumps to come and say, hey, white people, we need a group. Because the other side is all about groups that say you suck and are going to get even if they get political power. And then all of a sudden, all the vermin and flotsam start rising up. And, you know, that's what the Trumps of the world and, frankly, too many in the Republican Party have done. Because this America of groups thing, I, I think, is not only poison, it reduces American politics away from the great idea into just the power, into tribalism, which is what we have now. The equation of politics now, the still Bill Gray's old line, it's I'm right, you're evil. And if you're evil, I can do anything to you. Lock her up, whatever it might be. I definitely agree with the idea that like, on both sides, one of the things we're lacking is any sense of national identity. And, and I've been struggling with this for a while, and I feel like we deal with it as, I mean, look, obviously, like, I'm a liberal, and so you and I are going to have different views on like, the relative importance of the groups and the tribalism. But from a national cultural standpoint, I worry all the time about the fact that what what does it mean to have an American identity at this point? It's like one in three people watch the Super Bowl. Everybody's got a strong view on Taylor Swift. Like we, it's the longest period we've ever gone through without mandatory service of some kind in our nation's history. And we used to have like three channels. There was a one in three chance you'd go to work and whoever you were talking to, they saw the same thing, got the same news. And, and so I do think, and it's a whole other conversation, but in the long run, you know, over the next, several years, we've got to figure out how we get Americans to know one another again, which I think is very separate from 
dissolving the groups and more about having all the groups have friends in the other groups, which is well, not also, the case in America. Right buy and do one affinity to the idea of America, which ought to be equality, opportunity, and democracy with respect for institutions. I mean, at USC at the center, we're always talking about, like, Shrum and I, who's, you know, the director there, Bob Shrum, that you ought to get him on the podcast. Yeah, he and good. I have been beating each other's brains out in political campaigns for 30 years, but we're still friends. He is my opponent, not my enemy. And Shrum has a good line, which is, you know, we can have disagreements. Disagreements are good. That's why we have politics. But we, we have to have a common set of facts so we can have a legitimate argument. Right now what we've got is, and you know, look, I work for NBC, the world's greatest news organization, proud to be there. But we have a cable network where when the sun goes down, most of the time they're going to give you one set of facts. And, you know, my uncle can go turn on Fox and get a whole different set of facts. Or he can turn on CNN and get probably two-thirds the MSNBC set of facts. And that reinforces the I'm right, you're evil stuff. And it's a real problem. And I'm actually for the National Service stuff because I'm a big melting pot guy. And, you know, even the draft, much as the Army hates it, it's interesting. When you, when you look at the demography of America, Americans under 18 are only about 57% Caucasian. And that generation, by demography, commingles a lot. And so we have a lot less problem there. It's the older people in garage-out suburban world or in, in a dense zip code of one minority group or another who spend a lot of time, you know, thinking the worst of the other. And there's a whole industry now that revs it up, you know, tells you who your enemy is and what all your grievance problems are. Yeah, our democracy cannot work under that set of gravity. If you think about how far this country has gone, even from the 2008 election, you know, where you know, Mike, our, our respective bosses and, and McCain and, and Obama both had a vision of America that was infinitely more uniting than uh, what most people believe today is possible. And it's it's amazing how far we've gone since what election that at the time we would have, I think we characterize that as a fairly caustic, acrimonious election by historical standards and is was infinitely more unifying and patriotic than where we find ourselves today. Um, yeah, common purpose is a big deal. We could use a few more Apollo missions, um, things like that, that are hard because the country's much better united around a purpose than it is figuring out what's wrong with each other. So, uh, Ravi, as you know, we are parenting an infant right now. That means you don't get to sleep very much. Bella is a great baby. You know, I have no complaints. She sleeps awesome when the sun is out at night not so much and that means that those in-between moments where you can catch not even sleep i would just call it a nap during the night the fact that we have this awesome helix mattress is kind of a game changer it's giving us a level of sleep efficiency for which i am truly grateful right now helix has a quiz that you can go online it takes about two minutes and you complete it, and it will match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. And what happened was both you and I went on and, and took that quiz, and surprisingly, we both have the same preferences. We both got the Lux Midnight mattress, which means that we both sleep on our sides. And so if you're looking for a mattress, you could take the quiz and order a mattress that's matched to you, uh, and you could add on sheets and pillows or whatever else you need for your bed, and then the mattress comes right to your door within 10 business days. Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take our word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54 
Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but of course you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com majority54. Ravi, how goes your relationship with the person you correspond with at Noom? Y'all getting along? Things all yeah. right over there? <laughs> uh, so what Jason's referring to is this app called Noom that we've both been using for a little while now. What makes it awesome is it's an all-in-one fitness solution for folks. It's a fitness community where you can get together with like-minded people and set goals and, and motivate and hold each other accountable to those goals. You could track your food that you eat. You could track different metrics like your weight and other personal habits that you have. But what Jason's talking about is they also link you up with a coach. And that coach, you can message back and forth throughout the day when you need advice on what you're eating, how you're exercising, and different choices that you're making. And your coach will both offer you sound advice, but also motivate you to make good choices. I've been using it now for a few months with great results. I've lost a, a ton of weight and gotten myself back into my pre-COVID shape. Noom is special, like I said, because it offers lessons on psychology of making good choices. It gives you flexibility so that no matter your lifestyle, you'll be able to tailor solutions to you. It's not a diet, and it's an easy-to-stick-to way of life. Look, you don't got to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash majority. What do you got to lose? Visit Noom.com slash majority to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash majority. We have a quarantine corner from uh, our friends at Noom. Jason, what do you have for us this week? True and I have been, True's my, my seven-year-old son, Mike. True and I have been uh, singing a lot to his brand new baby sister, Bella. We made her a mixtape. And, uh, and it's been nice because it is a reminder just that singing is just kind of good for your soul. Just spending a lot of time. I'm a horrible singer, but, you know, she's not that opinionated yet. And uh, True has no idea. He thinks everything I do is great, which is awesome. I hope that continues for as long as possible. But, yeah, I've been singing a lot lately, and it's been uh, good, for my, good for my mental health, I think. Uh, let's see. That is a good question. You know, I my wife convinced me to leave the cell phone behind, which for a political hack, three weeks outside elections is a big deal. And we we escaped for about 36 hours. It was fantastic. You know, just get away from the heroin of politics. We that's sat a by long a pool. time. Yeah, I, I mean, I snuck. I brought a laptop in case of crisis, and there was two little <laughs> sneak looks. And they knew the hotel number. They could have found me if, you know, <laughs> Trump ripped off his head and snakes popped out and the alien saucers appeared or something really good. Here's a new plan. Only look at political coverage of your Twitter feed on odd-numbered days. You will cut your anxiety in half and the outcome will be just the same. Because believe me, 36 hours off work great for me. (laughs) Well, uh, I I just this week uh, booked a trip after the election, kind of on a leap of faith that we'll actually have some indication within a week of the election about where things are going to go. And so Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going down to Costa Rica to surf. And I don't have a return ticket, so I might just work from there for a while. <laughs> yeah, depending and, on the outcome. Yeah, <laughs> depending on the outcome. Uh, it's going to be faster than people think. You're going to be okay. <laughs> You're going to have to come back. And I too, I've picked up uh, screenwriting as well, and so I've got uh, a, uh, I've got some notes. I've got to 
incorporated. They're going to take me a couple of weeks. Um, and so hopefully by the time Thanksgiving rolls around, I'll, I'll know how to surf and I'll have a completed script uh, to send off. Well, so. congratulations. That, that is a hard thing to do. I, I, I know it well. So I'll give you the universal note. My wife was a very successful uh, um, creative executive in, in the movies and television for a long time. I worked on the Harry Potter stuff and a bunch of stuff. And she, she, when I first started doing this, she, I was whining about it. And I don't know that because there's only one note, faster, funnier, more heart. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's actually, my note without having read your thing. That's actually not far off um, from what I've got. So especially <laughs> the faster part. Uh, yeah, yeah, cut, cut, cut. We have a segment, Mike, we call This Week in Misinformation. So what we're going to focus on is Trump. He traveled down to Sanford, Florida on Monday night and delivered a 65-minute speech to supporters from an airport hangar um, doing his best Castro impression. He claimed to be so powerful and immune from the virus. Uh, and, of course, he didn't wear a mask when he boarded Air Force One. Uh, and he said, uh, quote, I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women. Just give you a big, fat kiss. But we're not going to focus on that really awkward. Yeah, but uh, now, now we're all going to have to like spend a month getting it out of our nightmare journal. <laughs> yeah, just the, <laughs> the visual image just ruined me for a week. <laughs> Go ahead. But the, the speech was all over the place. But one thing you've talked about, Mike, and, and you talk about on your podcast is that Trump is on his best ground when he talks about the economy, because relatively speaking, his numbers are best when he when he's on the economy. Voters trust him more on that issue than anything else. Uh, and this is what he had to say. Sleepy Joe wants to quadruple your taxes, you know, wants to quadruple. How about where he gets caught again? He said, oh, no, we're not going to give a tax increase, but we're going to terminate all of the Trump tax cuts. Well, that's $2,000 plus child tax credits, plus all of the other things. Basically, he was saying that Biden's going to raise your taxes. And so... I know that there's an obvious fact check here, which is that Biden uh, is only going to, at least according to his plan, I know, Mike, you, you don't believe Biden. I think I've heard you say well, that. No, I know end. he's going to raise my taxes, which is making this whole rent not buy a Democrat thing from even tougher for me. But, uh, but here's what I believe. <laughs> I believe the next president, if they're sane, so that means there's one choice, is going to have to raise taxes simply because we're spending World War II money on COVID. Because interest rates are so low, we can kind of fake it for a while. But we're putting on a, you know, we. I used to bitch all the time about Obama and debt because like Bob Dole and I are the only two left who care. But when interest rates go normal, this is crushing. It means goodbye national parks. I mean, people don't take it as seriously as they should. And next president's going to have to raise revenue. There's just no way. And And I actually, as a conservative right wing nut, I'm for raising taxes because we have to. But I want some fairness to it. My theory is, you ought to raise everybody's taxes a bit because, again, we're all in it together. So people start to have an equation that that fiscal policy is relevant to their lives, not only in what they get, but what they pay. It makes for a better democracy than just saying tax the rich. So I, I am actually for So I, I think Biden means his promise. But I think when he gets there and they say, here's infrastructure. Ouch. Here's more covid relief, because guess what? The vaccine doesn't work as well as we thought. It might be more like normal. Here are all these costs. There's got to be revenue and all Americans ought to be part. I don't care if they raise your taxes 200 bucks, but everybody ought to be part of it. So I just think the events will conspire to force that. Now, does Biden believe only tax increase on people under 400 today? Yeah, because the great thing about being a candidate 
is you don't really want to get briefed all the way down to you have no choices. You kind of stop the meeting. <laughs> after, okay, we can probably work it out. We have to go after carried interest in those damn corporations. We're under 400, I won't touch. And nobody wants to say, sir, actually, it's quite worse than, you know, and you just go on to win the campaign. But I believe in life, taxes are going to have to go up to feed the beast. Is this punch going to land, though? Guys, like that's kind of part of the question is like, I know that oh, there's Trump? so much noise out yeah, there. It's another, right it, they're all about Trump speeches are about Trump. You know, it's like, you know, dad hated me. I need a crowd in a hockey arena. I mean, it's all <laughs> psychology. Now, I will <laughs> say you know, in a world where he can, where he can make a, a sober, lucid taxes argument, Mike, traditionally, that's, that's y'all's bread and butter, right? I mean, that's yeah. usually, that's how you make your money. Right. Well, that's been a good Repub issue. The problem is, We've gone from the party that claims to hate spending and quietly spends to the party that doesn't talk about spending and massively spends. And so what Biden does at the Dem, the Dems always run on a tax cut because, they, you know, it's always a middle class tax cut targeted the hardworking and it's $11 so they can they can, you know, score it. But they want the rhetoric of I'm for a tax cut. Obama was for big tax cuts until he wasn't. But the thing that's driving me into a blind rage, as you can tell, is we conservatives have lost our ability to prosecute anything because our guy's so bad. You know, I have I, there are a million things about the progressive left that drive me batshit, but I I don't I can't really say much about him because I've got a guy who's an orangutan throwing turds at everybody. So it's kind of hard for me to get on offense here. And our guys, Trump's not a conservative. And people say, "Oh, Mike, you're a good moderate." No, I'm not. I'm a right winger. But Trump Trump does not believe in free trade. He doesn't believe in the Atlantic Alliance has kept the peace since World War II. Uh, he doesn't understand how the government works. He has total contempt for the rule of law. He thinks the Justice Department is his own ambulance-chasing law firm. Uh, on every level, the guy is in the anathema to what those of— I, I signed up for this shit because in 1980, that's how old I am, I got up every morning at Georgetown University at the School of Foreign Service, and a, a defector from the Russian Air Force, former Major Peter Pirogov, would scream at us in Russian. I was in Russian. I was signing up to fight the Cold War and against the Soviets who were bad. I was in Russia pre-Gorbachev. I got braced by the KGB. I had the full experience. Most people I went to school with went to work in the national security bureaucracy, who Trump has total contempt for. Those stars on the wall of the CIA, for those heroes that we don't know their names, but we know what happened, Trump just spits on that every damn day. So anyway, Trump's not a conservative. He's nothing. We've lost our ability to make conservative arguments as the parties become toadies to Trump. Now, I hope for a reformation rather than Trump 2.0, and that'll be what the great civil war of the Republican Party after the rubble uh, is going to be about. And I can't tell you how it'll turn out. It's going to be a fun big war, but I don't know what'll happen. Well, I think what's interesting is the the other side to that coin is while you all have lost the ability to make these arguments in a cohesive way, I think we, both at the individual to individual level and at the press and messaging level, have figured out some things and learned from how y'all used to do things. So if you look at like how you know in 2010, in the midterm, when it was all about, are we going to repeal the Bush tax cuts, you had Democrats in tough Senate races and House races splintering in every different direction running for cover, you know, saying, oh, well, no, no, I'm going to keep the Bush tax cuts. And some were saying, oh, I'm going to keep these Bush tax cuts. Whereas what we figured out is, one, what you just said, which is the public is wise to the idea that the tax cut thing from the Republicans is really like, we're going to help our rich friends, because that's how the Republicans have been doing it for the last decade or so. And then the second part of it is we've realized the the value of making an argument. So now we go, no, 
We're, we're not like, oh, okay, some of the Trump tax cuts are good. We're like, no, Trump is bad. His tax cuts are bad. The whole thing is bad. We're going to give you good stuff. And right. that's just far better. Uh, in yeah, terms no, of it is. You guys just have to watch your flank on you're going to give us solar-powered bubble cars that nobody believes in, a tangible made-in-the-USA list of stuff. We're going to you make know. you drive a solar power. Right? <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and we're going to take all your guns California. so we can't, you can't resist it. But but I agree with that. But like Green New Deal, where you guys go sideways is people don't really trust you guys to execute it because they know we're the mean Republicans who pre-Trump could, could execute. So that's where you need that's a little. A you, know, you know what's going to be interesting about all this? If the Repubs lose the Senate, which if I had to bet today, I bet they will, Biden's best secret friend, and th this is going to, you're going to get angry hate mail, so send it all to Jason Kander and Ravi Gupta. I, I've got a mail block. I won't read it. Mitch McConnell, because the for 20 years, the one Dem who could go into a room with Mitch McConnell and cut an okay deal was Joe Biden. They actually get along. What people understand is McConnell hates Trump. He's like stuck there. So on, on the way out, as the building burns, he's going to try to at least get a conservative on the Supreme Court as his legacy, which is why they're jamming this thing. Not because they think the politics are any good. They know they're bad, but they don't really care how it plays for Trump. They, they want to leave something in, in the wreckage. Mitch does. But Mitch and Biden have done deals before, and Biden has to be careful of the progressives saying, all right, old man, we got you elected. You're a lame duck. Uh, we're going to do our own thing. And there'll be enough hours in the Senate to slow stuff down and a few Dems who are pretty centrist and won't sign up. And it'll come down to Joe being able to make a deal with McConnell to get anything done, which is good for Biden because it keeps him strong and relevant. Because Joe's core skill is Senate dealmaker. So they're actually going to need that. So it's weird. It's the threat of McConnell that will empower Biden the most in the actual grind of government going forward. It'll be a funny switch. Well, maybe we get the Green New Deal, but we build all the solar panels in Kentucky. <laughs> there you go. That's politics. <laughs> there, exactly. I want to get you out of here in time, and I and I uh, mercifully, I'm not going to allow you to end on a full throated defense of Mitch McConnell. So we have a segment. <laughs> uh, we have a segment called Grab an Oar, uh, which is where we end with action and. Uh, we always give the courtesy of the floor to whoever our guest is. Uh, and so this is an opportunity for plug anything where our listeners can get involved or uh, follow along with any of the work that you're doing. Oh, well, great. One, go to rvet.org and help win Florida. It's a one-point, two-point race right now. Trump's had a little comeback there. The nice thing about Florida, you win that, they count the absentee ballots in real time. None of this week-long crap. Because if late on election night, we're half 95% of the Florida vote in, and if Biden's won, I don't care what Trump says about the week-long count in Wisconsin. The the political neck is snapped. Florida's the most important real estate in the race. Uh, two, my friend, my communist, showbiz, liberal, warm-hearted friend, Phil Rosenthal, who you may remember from Everybody Loves Raymond and now Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix, who's got a good Twitter feed. He's teamed up with Chef Andreas to do this great thing where they are sending food trucks on a nonpartisan basis to polling places that have incredibly long lines to make that a little easier for people. And, you know, frankly, in action in some places, that's an affront to our democracy. So you can check either World Kitchen, Andreas, or Phil Rosenthal out on Twitter and do what I did, which is donate to that worthy effort. Mike, thanks for doing this. This was a great episode, and uh, I enjoyed the hell out of it. You, well, Robbie? thank you, guys. Yeah, oh, no, I, it was fun. Thank you for letting yeah. me bloviate. So, uh, you know, last thing I do is I give everybody the social media handles so they can know where to give you shit about your Mitch McConnell take. So where, 
Where do they find you, Mike? At Murphy Mike on the Twitter the kids like on that interweb of theirs. At Murphy Mike. All right. You can send your hate about McConnell through the tubes of the internet to Mike at that address. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta uh, on Twitter and Instagram. The show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.